Hello and welcome to CMAJ Podcasts. I'm Kirsten Patrick, one of CMAJ's deputy editors, and with me today to discuss the February 17th issue of the journal is Dr. Matthew Stanbrook, another of CMAJ's deputy editors. Hello, Kirsten. It's great to be with you today. So, Matthew, it looks like on the cover of this issue, we have some adults engaged in exercise activity. It looks like yoga. And this is to illustrate the guidelines that we have in this issue from the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Healthcare. They are recommendations for both prevention and management of overweight and obesity in adults in primary care. There are a long set of guidelines with lots of evidence about what works and what doesn't. We've also got three pieces of research in this issue of the journal. And the first is the risk of adverse events among older adults following co-prescription of clarithromycin, an antibiotic, and statins that are not metabolized by cytochrome P450-3A4. What can you tell us about this paper? Well, this paper is a very interesting piece of research that comes uh, from the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences in Ontario, and researchers affiliated with that institute from both Western University and the University of Toronto. Now, this study uh, discusses uh, two classes of commonly prescribed medications, one being statins, which are, of course, very widely used in the population to treat hyperlipidemia, and uh, macrolide antibiotics. Now, We're used to uh, the fact that drug interactions are a big problem and and often hard to recognize, and therefore spotting common interactions are really, really important. We're used to thinking of common pathways that that this occurs through, one being the cytochrome P450 uh, enzyme system in the liver, which, as you know, Kirsten, is responsible for metabolizing a lot of drugs and is the source of a lot of drug interactions. But that system isn't the only mechanism in the liver that is important for uh, drug metabolism. There is another system that they focus on in this paper that is called the organic ion transporting polypeptide system. And this system turns out to be very relevant to statins. It has a big role in transferring statins out of the blood to be taken up into liver cells. So if something inhibits this system, it could lead to higher blood concentrations of the statins. So this group of researchers looked at the interaction between statins and a class of antibiotics, macrolides. The two commonly prescribed macrolides are, as you know, clarithromycin and azithromycin, and they differ in one key respect. Clarithromycin inhibits this organic ion-transporting polypeptide system. It also inhibits cytochrome P450, and there are many known drug interactions related to clarithromycin in this way. But this group wanted to look specifically at the newer, uh, more, uh, the organic uh, ion-transporting pathway. So what they did... Um, was they restricted their study to looking at only those statins that are metabolized through this pathway and not through the cytochrome P450 system. That's rosuvastatin, pravastatin, and fluvastatin. And then they looked at patients who had received either a prescription for clarithromycin, which inhibits the pathway, or azithromycin, which has the same clinical indication, which provides good matching, uh, but does not inhibit the pathway. 
Now, to do this, they went to the population health services databases for the province of Ontario, and they found over 100,000 patients over about a decade who had received um, one or the other antibiotic. And then they looked at co-prescription of statins, and they looked for adverse events within 30 days. And what they found is exactly as predicted. Those who received clarithromycin were more likely to have adverse events within the first 30 days than people receiving azithromycin. These events were rare. They, they were about one in, uh, in a thousand to four in 1,000. But when they happened, they were serious. There was an excess of acute kidney injury, of hyperkalemia, and even of all-cause mortality, uh, more commonly seen with clarithromycin co-prescription than with azithromycin co-prescription. So what this research is telling us is here's one more in the long line of demonstrated interactions between clarithromycin and other drugs when taken together. In this case, an interaction with statins. But the key feature is this is through a pathway that's not cytochrome P450. So the take-home message is we've got to remember there are other ways for drugs to interact. Clarithromycin has a lot of these interactions. And so for, for people on statins, clinicians should think about choosing an alternative drug to clarithromycin, azithromycin being the obvious candidate. The author of the linked commentary that goes with this research paper is concerned about the plausibility of proposed interactions and the clinical significance of the findings. Can you tell us what the commentary says? Yes, we have a commentary by Dr. Streetman and Dr. Stout on this paper. They are concerned about the fact that uh, what was not observed in this study was a significant increase in rhabdomyolysis. Now, rhabdomyolysis is perhaps the best-known adverse effect of statins. Uh, and the sequelae of that, kidney injury and hyperkalemia, would only really be expected to, to, to manifest themselves if the rhabdomyolysis was there. Now, in fairness, the, the study did observe uh, an increased point estimate of rhabdomyolysis. It just failed to reach statistical significance. So it's possible that there was a relationship there, and yet the incidence of that was lower than the incidence of kidney disease and hyperkalemia. So uh, the commentators are wondering, is this really the whole story, and, and uh, is this really what's, what's going on here? They also observe that this is a rare effect, and so clinicians can be reassured that this isn't going to be a common problem. Um, and yet there is still the, um, the alternative choice of another drug in the class that doesn't predispose to, to this interaction. So clinicians can, can take those caveats and, and make a decision as to what to do for their own patients. So it's great to have that context for the research paper. And that's not the only commentary that we have in this issue. The second commentary is one about unsanctioned travel restrictions related to the Ebola outbreak. And Canada is looking very guilty. I was rather interested in this commentary by Patani, who comments on the travel restrictions that a number of jurisdictions put into place during the Ebola epidemic, um, Australia and Canada being perhaps the the two biggest and most powerful nations who did that. The the author of the commentary is saying that these travel restrictions disrupt the social contract that we have with appointing the WHO as the global organizing body and directing body for issues of global health importance. Now, what's very interesting is that under the auspices of the World Health Organization, 
is the international health re regulations, which were revised in 2005 after the SARS epidemic, of which Canada was an important player. And essentially what the international health regulations say is that no travel restrictions should be put in place during an epidemic of global importance that are not sanctioned by the WHO because they disrupt travel and trade and the economy in a way that isn't very helpful to countries that are affected. So what happened was that Canada and following Australia uh, issued bans on the issuing of visas to people who were traveling from the affected West African countries. And the WHO has strongly condemned these measures, but nothing has been done to take these countries to task. And essentially, the WHO doesn't have that kind of, of, of disciplining mechanism. They just say that they're not happy with the situation. But countries with great political clout, like Canada and Australia, are not doing themselves any favors by by behaving in that way. So it is a very serious problem. And the authors say the Ebola was a cause for panic, but this is a cause for moral panic if we are not upholding the global regulations that we are all signatories to. Kristen, I must say I find this this issue of the restrictions we, we put on Ebola um, troubling myself. I lived and worked as a physician in Toronto during the SARS epidemic in 2003, and I remember being uh, prevented from attending an international conference that I was invited to solely because I came from the city that was having a SARS outbreak. Now, that was a situation in which the World Health Organization actually did uh, initiate the travel restrictions, and yet in, during that time, Canada was outraged. Canada protested, and our city was up in arms. So I, I'm struck by the, the, the really hypocrisy uh, of Canada now to uh, do the same sort of restrictions, even without the WHO sanction, when it comes to Ebola. It seems to me that Canada has forgotten the lessons that we learned during the SARS crisis when we ourselves were outraged by this kind of treatment from other countries. So uh, I, I would hope that, that we all could reflect on that a little bit more. And I, I think readers should, should read this commentary and, uh, uh, and reflect on it as well. So the authors of the commentary mentioned that we should have a sense of moral panic about this reaction to the Ebola epidemic. And another source of moral panic could perhaps be what you mentioned in your editorial, which is in this issue. Uh, caring for Aboriginal patients requires trust and respect, not courtrooms. And it looks at the issue of two young Aboriginal girls who have recently come into contact with the legal system and that there has been some outrage that these issues were resolved through legal means rather than through the medical system. Do you want to talk to the editorial? So I have the good fortune to uh, be able to partner on this with Dr. Lisa Richardson, who uh, is a general internist here in Toronto and is also the head of the uh, Office of Indigenous Medi Medical Education at the University of Toronto. And she has unique, unique insight into this area as she happens to be of Aboriginal descent herself. And so we saw this issue being debated very vigorously in the media ever since the court case of this young girl in, in uh, the Hamilton area, JJ, where the hospital had taken her to court 
to attempt to require her to undergo treatment with chemotherapy after she and her family had declined to do so, uh, and the court ruling that the the law could not force that to happen, in fact. And rather than focusing on the the matter that was already being discussed in, in the media, we chose to take a broader look at this issue and to focus on uh, elements of this issue that we felt weren't being discussed. And we look at this situation as an issue of a critical incident uh, in, in healthcare. And when we have a critical incident with potentially fatal outcomes, as unfortunately has happened with another similar Aboriginal girl, Michaela Sue, as, as most people will, will know by now, uh, who, who died of her leukemia after declining uh, chemotherapy treatment, uh, when we see a critical event in healthcare, we have learned that the thing to do is to look at what systemic factors led to that area, error rather, and how we might correct the system. We have learned not to put the blame on individuals, uh, not to uh, find scapegoats for this. We have learned that the problem lies with the system and we only prevent further critical incidents by fixing the systemic problem. And that really hasn't been talked about in the public discourse around this issue here. So what we called for was for people to stop blaming the treating physicians for violating the the, the cultural rights of, of the patients in that they were trying to save the girl's life and doing what they thought they had to do. We called for people to stop blaming the family and we called for people to stop blaming the judge. Everyone we, we felt was trying to do the best they could from their perspective. And what we argued instead was to look at why these situations are happening at all. Why was it that a girl and her family lost trust in evidence-based medical care such that she sought out non-evidence-based treatment, as has been pointed out in the media, going to a naturopathic clinic in Florida, and that she felt that relying on traditional Aboriginal treatment was, was sufficient. And for that, we, we didn't have to look very far. We looked to the evidence on how Aboriginals fare within the medical system in Canada. And it isn't very hard to find ample evidence that Aboriginal patients are not treated appropriately or well within our system, that there is widespread mistrust, and that this is pervasive. This is a problem that belongs to all of us. And the evidence is quite clear that throughout the system, we do not address Aboriginals in a culturally sensitive way. And the root cause of this is simply our lack of cultural competence with, with Aboriginal patients. Unless we actually uh, have significant interactions with Aboriginals or ha have lived in Aboriginal communities or have taken it upon ourselves to become aware of that, we may not deliver the care to Aboriginals, have the interactions with Aboriginal patients that are necessary to uh, in ensure that they have trust in us and the treatments we are offering the way that our non-Aboriginal patients automatically do because of that cultural gap between us and because of the history of cultural conflict between non-Aboriginals and Aboriginals in Canada. We're going to need to look at what we do and, and ask ourselves how can we do better and take advantage of, of programs uh, and successful initiatives that are helping with this. For example, a very good program that's been put together in British Columbia that's partnered with Aboriginal communities and has helped deliver uh, better care and, and ensure better community participation. This is a problem we all own, and this is a problem we need to address as a system if we're going to, to have our patients trust in us more. Indeed. So you and Dr. Richardson have given the profession a lot to think about in your editorial. 
So there's more research in this issue, two more pieces of research. One is on cost-effectiveness of screening for hepatitis C in Canada. And we didn't know if it was worth screening for hepatitis C in Canada. Is the prevalence high enough of latent disease? And the question's very difficult to answer using traditional research methods. So what these authors have done is they've done a cost-effectiveness analysis. And cost-effectiveness analyses always rest very heavily on a lot of assumptions and a complicated model that is often a black box to many readers. What did you think of the economic model that these researchers used, Matthew? Well, this is a very carefully done model from a group that's very experienced in, in doing this. This is the, the Toronto Health Technology Assessment Group uh, at the University of Toronto in collaboration with the Public Health Agency of Canada. So this is a body charged with doing a lot of this type of analysis in a wide variety of clinical contexts. The thing with hepatitis C is, number one, a lot of people have it and don't know they have it. Number two, if you don't know you have it, you may not find out about it until it's too late, until it's caused chronic complications like cirrhosis. Number three, there's an effective way now of preventing this with, with current treatments that we have and curing the hepatitis C before it gets to that point. So the question is, is it worthwhile to broadly and aggressively screen everyone, find the people with hepatitis C who don't know they have it, and treat them? in order to prevent those complications. So this group took all the clinical data we have about treatment efficacy, about prevalence, about costs, and put this together in their model. And they basically compared four plausible options, one of which was no screening at all, three of which involved screening each with a different treatment approach, one involving a more, a more long-standing treatment approach with interferon and ribavirin, uh, a second with interferon and more modern drugs, and a third with the more modern antiretrovirals alone without interferon. Those all have very different cost and effectiveness implications. What they find is, yes, indeed, it is worthwhile to screen and treat. So it's clear that treating will reduce the incidence of, of cirrhosis, will in, uh, reduce the incidence of hepatitis C-related death, the real question is, is how much does it cost and is it worth it? Well, this model says, yes, it is. So the estimated cost per quality adjusted life year gained was in the range of thirty-five dollars to $45,000 per year. That's in line with many other treatments that we currently fund and agree is a worthwhile investment for society. So based on the, the, the best attempt to model, uh, based with the data we have, this is saying we should indeed have a one-time screening program find everyone with hepatitis C in Canada, treat them all, uh, and, and, and avoid these health complications. For this to all work out, I think, depends on every physician who's got a role in screening, particularly our primary care physicians, to offer screening to patients. And I think it calls for a broad public health campaign to encourage this so that we can find these people and treat them uh, and make sure we, we avoid some, some avoidable complications with the very effective therapies we have now. Now, on the subject of effective therapies, we have a, a companion piece in, in our innovation section in this issue of the journal, don't we, Kristen? That's right. We have a, a piece in innovations on sofosbivir for the treatment of hepatitis C. And that's part of the combination therapies, what it would form part of combination therapies going forward. What is sofosbivir? Now, sofosfivir is one of these newer direct-acting antiviral treatments that work against hepatitis. 
And it's now enabled people to be treated for hepatitis C in regimens that don't involve interferon, which causes a lot of side effects and is, is cumbersome to administer. It's, it's intravenous. This can be taken as a pill in combination with other treatments. So those in the hepatitis field have, have talked about this, this really revolutionizing their ability to deliver curative treatment for hepatitis. Of course, this comes with a high price tag. So the innovations paper is now telling clinicians all about this new drug uh, very briefly so that uh, people will know what they're going to start to be seeing much more commonly now in practice for patients with hepatitis C. And it's probably worth mentioning that these sorts of drugs have quite high levels of side effects. And they mention here 5% for the sofosbuvir ribavirin group and 3% in the placebo group. So slightly higher rates of side effects, which is important to remember. Lots of interesting findings for uh, policymakers in Canada from what we've got in the journal this this week. Now, going back to the last piece of research, we are looking at lung protective ventilation with lower tidal volumes on um, clinical outcomes among patients undergoing surgery. Now, what we already know is that lung protective ventilation is safer than conventional ventilation in patients with acute respiratory distress syndromes, but we don't know if it is better or leads to better outcomes for patients who are anesthetized and undergoing thoracic or abdominal surgery. What, do this, what does this study find, Matthew? So the first condition in which this form of lung protective ventilation was studied was adult respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, where this intervention of cutting back the volumes that you ventilate a patient with, cutting it uh, essentially in half from the volumes conventionally given, reduced mortality significantly in patients with ARDS. And over the subsequent 15 years, this form of lung protective ventilation has been validated in a wide variety of contexts. Well, this study here looks at lung protective ventilation in perhaps the most common context in which ventilation is used, which is ventilation at the time of elective surgery. They find, as with all uh, the other uh, contexts in which uh, lung protective ventilation has been studied, that indeed lung protective ventilation prevents post-operative complications after elective surgery. Specifically, they find a significant reduction in the outcomes of lung injury, as would be expected, and also importantly in post-operative pneumonia, which is a very common post-operative complication, uh, as, as you know. They did not find a significant reduction in mortality, but the the point estimate was trending towards a lower effect, and it may just be that there wasn't significant power in the accumulated studies uh, enough to demonstrate a real effect on mortality. Remember that this is a very different group of patients from those, for example, with ARDS, where the mortality rate is very high. These are healthy people going in for major surgery. One wouldn't expect a lot of death uh, in this setting. So... Uh, it, it's hard to find a signal there. But on the whole, putting all the accumulated evidence together for 19 randomized trials says that uh, elective surgery is another context where we should keep the volumes lower to protect our patients. Great summary of the evidence. And we haven't got a great deal of time to mention other things in the journal. As usual, we have a bulging practice section with um, recommendations from the Choosing Wisely campaign. I also wanted to briefly mention the humanity section of the journal this week, which contains a very moving essay written by Alicia Priest, who was an author and medical journalist, uh, recently died on the th- January the 13th, 2015. 
Now, Alicia had ALS and she wrote a lot about her um, disease very beautifully, very poignantly. And here she had agreed to write a piece specifically for CMAJ, actually died before she could submit it and it was submitted by her widower. So a very profound piece that has been picked up quite widely in the media where she talks about how love and kindness are parts of the healing or disease-relieving process. She also asks questions, why me? And then comes around to the answer, which many come around to in life, why not me? Why should it not be me? Why should it be somebody else? A beautiful piece, well worth reading. That brings us to the end of this discussion of the February 17th issue of CMAJ. I'm Kirsten Patrick, and with me has been Matthew Stanbrook for CMAJ Podcasts.